Okay, hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Heidi Daniel, and I'm the new president and CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library System, and I'm here to welcome you today to the 2017 Mencken Day celebration. So thank you all so much for coming out today. And I really want to thank the Maryland Historical Society for hosting us here today. As some of you may be aware, our central library is undergoing a massive multi-million dollar renovation. So although the Mencken Day or the Mencken Room is open today until 5 p.m., we were not able to host the celebration and speakers there today. But um, I'm very excited to be here for my very first Mencken Day celebration, and I'd like to recognize the members of the Mencken Society who have been so supportive of the Pratt over the years and to thank you. So thank you for your support and for all that you do. I appreciate it. Um, I also want to recognize and thank Brent Gerard, who's here today representing Senator Van Hollen. Uh, Brett, where are you? There you are. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. So Henry Mencken was known as the Attila of critics, but he had a soft spot for Baltimore and thankfully for the Pratt Library. As a child, he would visit Branch Number 2, which was near his home in southwest Baltimore. And although his formal education ended in high school, through the library, H.L. Mencken became a lifelong learner. He became a distinguished writer and was still a familiar face inside of our central library just a few blocks from here. Mencken went on to become a legendary newspaper man. On today's invitation, you may have noticed the image of his press badge. He wore that badge with pride, famously calling newspaper reporting the life of kings. Just like librarians everywhere, Mencken was passionate about free speech. It's certainly something that the library feels very strongly about as well. And in the Chicago Tribune in 1926, he said, Herein lies the value of free speech. It makes concealment difficult and in the long run, impossible. And I think that quote still resonates today, as does so many others he wrote. I'm new to Baltimore, but as I look around the city, it's hard not to find an H.L. Mencken quote displayed on a wall or a sign or a building. And of course, he was not without controversy, as we all know, and one of his favorite targets was religion. That brings us to today's speaker, Dr. Daryl G. Hart, who's a distinguished associate professor at Hillsdale College, a longtime member of the Mencken Society, and now their newly elected president. Congratulations. He earned his doctorate in US history from Johns Hopkins University and has written several books on the history of Christianity. His recent biography, Damning Words, The Life and Religious Times of H.L. Mencken, is casting new light on the sage of Baltimore. It's my honor to introduce today our special guest to deliver the 2017 Mencken Memorial Lecture, Dr. D.G. Hart. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I was, when I was a graduate student at Johns Hopkins in the 80s, uh, I would come to these events and sometimes wonder what it would take to speak at one of these, and now maybe I know. Uh, I should also take uh, institutional privilege and perhaps mention a few items out there on the, on the tables. Uh, among them, sign-up sheets for becoming a member of the Macon Society, if you, you're so inclined, and there are also uh, some videos from one of the Mencken Society's members who does an impersonation of Mencken and other figures. So I just, if you keep that in mind. The title of my talk is When America Was Great and Baltimore Knew Better. Between 1898 and 1920, the United States took center stage as a nation with sufficient power to rival Europe's. Before the end of the 19th century, American diplomacy and nation-building extended largely to securing borders in North America and keeping Europe's colonial reach out of the Western Hemisphere. The United States could live with a loyalist Canada as long as the British Empire was a welcome network for Americans to do business and stay out of war. Likewise, Americans could tolerate a Spanish-speaking country to the south, almost, sort of, as long as Mexico did not impede the extension of America to the Pacific Ocean. 
But with the Spanish-American War, the United States began to flex its muscles. Senator Albert Beveridge was typical of the national sentiments that tempted Americans to build their own empire. In his 1898 speech, The March of the Flag, the U.S. Senator from Indiana boasted, quote, it is a noble land that God has given us, a land that can feed and clothe the world. It is a mighty people that he has planted on this soil, a people sprung from the most masterful blood of history. It is a glorious history our God has bestowed upon his chosen people, a history heroic with faith in our mission and our future, a history of prophets who saw the consequences of evils inherited from the past and of martyrs who died to save us from them. End of quote. And that's just an excerpt. I mean, the language is even more umphy than that. The Great War, now numbered as the First World War, confirmed America's sense of greatness. Although Woodrow Wilson, who lived in Baltimore between 1883 and 1886, while a graduate student at Johns Hopkins, tried dutifully to keep the United States out of the European conflict that began in 1914. Wilson even ran successfully for re-election in 1916 on his policy of neutrality. The president's decision to fight on the side of the Allies was yet another feather in the cap of national greatness. Not only did the United States intervention enable the Allies to defeat the Kaiser, but Wilson conceived of the war as a cosmic struggle between the forces of light and darkness. In 1917, President Wilson told Congress, quote, our object now as then is to vindicate the principles of peace and justice in the life of the world as against selfish and autocratic power. The world must be made safe for democracy. We have no selfish ends to serve. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. America is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth and happiness and the peace which she has treasured. God helping her, she can do no other. End of quote. If the United States could win a war like that and do it for such glorious reasons, she was indeed great, so you might think. Prominent Baltimoreans, however, were dubious about America's new status. H.L. Mencken was arguably the greatest debunker of national pretensions, but he found an unlikely ally in the New Testament scholar from Princeton Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, a Baltimore native and the second son of Arthur W. Machen, one of the city's leading attorneys during the Progressive Era. And when I did a brief stint of um, jury duty, one of the halls I, rooms I went into in City Hall had a big portrait of Arthur Machen there. By the end of the war, Mencken was already on record with a controversial dismissal of the nation's purposes in Europe. After the war and the debacle of Wilson's plans to establish a liberal world order, Mencken believed the president's denials of selfishness were all the more preposterous. The United States had not acted out of benign disinterest, but had taken England's side against Germany, even if Wilson pretended to do so for virtuous reasons. And I quote Mencken. Despite all the current highfalutin about melting pots and national destinies, the United States remains almost as much an English, English colonial possession intellectually and spiritually as it was on July 3rd, 1776. Most of the essential policies of Dr. Wilson between 1914 and 1920 were to all intents and purposes those of a British colonial premier. He went into the peace conference willing to yield everything to English interests, and he came home with a treaty that was so extravagantly English that it fell, fell an easy prey to the anti-English minority. End of quote. Rights of man, democracy, justice. For Mencken, Wilson's war interests were simply a reflection of national interests cloaked in the pieties of Christian morality. For different reasons, Machen, who served at the front in France as a secretary for the YMCA, where he sold hot chocolate and cigarettes and led Bible studies on the side, was also skeptical about America's self-proclaimed virtues. His objections to the Wilson administration were private prior to the war, mainly surfacing in letters to congressional representatives and newspapers. After the war, Machen joined Mencken in debunking the vulgar jingoism and self-righteousness of American patriotism. The war effort had, he said, provided an, a convenient scapegoat in Germany 
that involved moral dangers like thinking that Americans, especially servicemen, possessed a human goodness that made religion unnecessary. He complained that modern preachers were saying to veterans, quote, you men are very good and very self-sacrificing, and we take pleasure in revealing your goodness to you. Now, since you are so good, you will probably be interested in Christianity, which we believe is good enough even for you, end of quote. Over the course of the 1920s, as the nation gradually accepted its mission as a beacon of progress, freedom, and democracy to the world, these two Baltimoreans, Mencken and Machen, remained dubious. Their criticisms escalated to national prominence in the year 1926, when each man went up against institutions designed to maintain the nation's stature. These episodes, Mencken's battle with literary censors in Boston, and Machen's feud with Presbyterian prohibitionists provide important clues to their reservations about American exceptionalism. Their attitudes suggest skepticism about grandiose ideas, a capacity to see through pretensions, modesty about human striving, and deep distrust of power. Whether that is a distinctly Baltimorean outlook is certainly debatable. But during the 1920s, these two Baltimoreans created headlines by reminding Americans that they and their nation were not nearly as much on the right side of history as their political and intellectual leaders believed. That both Mencken and Machen hailed from Baltimore cannot simply be coincidence, since when you consider that a Baltimore sensibility persists in writers like David Simon and vehicles like his highly acclaimed HBO series The Wire, this talk, uh, you can see that that sensibility remains, and that's sort of the cliffhanger of this talk, if I can get David Simon and The Wire back into this. For many Americans, including contemporary historians, 1925 was arguably the most significant year during the Jazz Age, if only because of the Scopes trial, the OJ-like proceedings of pre-television American history, since it was the first trial to be broadcast on the relatively new social medium of radio to the entire nation. Of course, Mencken was a figure, a major figure at the trial, and even had a hand in concocting the strategy to defend the Dayton biology teacher and used the affair to score points nationally against the folly of fundamentalists. Indeed, Mencken's place in the annals of of U.S. history is wrapped up with the pieces he wrote from Tennessee about the people, the trial, and the antics of William Jennings Bryan. Mencken's only claim to Hollywood fame, a sure measure of national significance, comes in the figure of E.K. Hornbeck in the 1960 movie Inherit the Wind, played by Gene Kelly, who does not dance in that movie. Machen only had a brush with greatness in Dayton. He was, by 1925, the most articulate voice of conservative Protestants in the, in the country, but also especially in the mainline Presbyterian Church, and that meant that Brian knew Machen at least by reputation, if not through personal interactions. Brian also belonged to the mainline Presbyterian Church. When the prosecution in Dayton began to assemble its list of expert witnesses, Brian contacted Machen, an accomplished New Testament scholar, to see if he could testify about the Genesis account of creation. Although Machen was resolute in his beliefs about the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ, he did not read the opening chapters of the Bible as a scientific account of human origins. For that reason, he politely declined Brian's invitation and explained that he was not an expert on Hebrew scriptures. Machen was no doubt relieved to be able to avoid the circus that Dayton became. Even so, when the New York Times asked him during the Scopes trial to write an article on what fundamentalism stands for now, which ran alongside a piece by the Stanford entomologist Vernon L. Kellogg entitled What Evolution Stands For Now, Machen did not refuse. He did, however, remain silent about evolution. What fundamentalism, a term he called distasteful, stood for was the way of salvation set forth in the Bible and in historic Christianity. So-called fundamentalists opposed liberal or modernist Protestants for denying those beliefs. The summer of 1925 was merely merely a warm-up to the subsequent year, which saw Mencken and Machen each take center stage not as part of a larger drama, but as leading men in their own productions. Both episodes played out at roughly the same time, with initial scenes transpiring in the spring of 1926 at Boston 
and New Brunswick, New Jersey. Mencken's was the more famous of the two, but both attracted national headlines. Between 1926 and 1927, Mencken's provocative editorial policies in the American Mercury caught up with him. The April issue of the magazine included the hat rack story by Herbert Asbury, a direct descendant of Francis Asbury, the so-called father of American Methodism. Asbury the Younger's story featured the life of a prostitute in in the small town of Farmington, Missouri, who serviced clients from a local Protestant congregation in nearby cemeteries after the Sunday evening service. As Asbury put it, quote, six days a week, hat rack was a competent and more or less virtuous drudge employed by one of our best families, but Sunday was her day off, and she then in turn offered her soul to the Lord and went to the devil, end of quote. The story was not sexually explicit and so avoided obscenity outright, but the lines between decency and vulgarity were easy to cross by Victorian standards. As much as Macon enjoyed provoking the cultural establishment's gatekeepers, he also knew they could impede the regular flow of literary commerce and so worried about being obviously offensive. As he wrote in an essay, even before the war, Quote, I am in moments borrowed from more palatable business, the editor of an American magazine, and thus I know at first hand what the burden is. The thing I always have to decide about a manuscript offered for publication before even I give any thought to its artistic merit and suitability is the question of whether its publication will be permitted. Not even whether it is intrinsically good or evil, moral or immoral, but whether some roving Methodist preacher self-commissioned to keep watch on letters, will read, it, will read indecency into it. Not a week passes that I do not decline some round, excuse me, sound and honest piece of work for no other reason, end of quote. Another Methodist, J. Franklin Chase, the secretary of the New England Watch and Ward Society, confirmed Mencken's worries. The head of one of the nation's oldest censorship organizations, which had such re- respectable Board members, as Harvard University's president, Charles W. Eliot, Chase took Mencken's bait with the hat rack story. On March 30, 1926, Chase arranged with criminal justice authorities to have Mr. C, I will call him because I cannot pronounce his last name, the owner of a newsstand in Harvard Square, arrested for selling obscene material, namely the issue of the American Mercury that included the hat rack story. Mencken, in turn, decided to call Chase's bluff by arranging to sell a copy of the magazine at Boston's Commons. The editor hoped that police, too, would arrest him and thereby use the courts to expose the the bizarre power that Chase had through a private voluntary organization. On April 5th, soon after after lunch, Mencken met with Chase with approximately 1,000 people watching. On cue... Chase purchased the magazine from Mencken for a half dollar, which the editor promptly bit to test the coin's authenticity. (laughs) Chase ordered Mencken's arrest. At police headquarters, Mencken learned that his trial was scheduled for the next day. He expected the judge to find him guilty, much like John T. Scope's fate in Dayton. Mencken also planned to appeal and use that forum to embarrass the prosecution in much the same way that Clarence Darrow had tarnished William Jennings Bryan's reputation in Tennessee. As it turned out, the trial had none of the drama that transpired in Dayton. Because the case involved charges of obscenity, attorneys had to make arguments quietly before the judge to protect the spectators. Also, because the presiding judge, James P. Parmenter, was a reasonable reasonable man, he found Mencken not guilty and dismissed the complaint. Mencken was shocked. He also lost sight of Chase, who had left Boston for New York City to ask the postmaster there to ban the next issue, the May number of the American Mercury from the mails. The offending article in this case was a piece by Bernard A. DeVoto called Sex and the Co-Ed. Mencken feared that it might offend censors and decided to halt the binding of the May issue in order to replace DeVoto's article with another. He fretted the magazine would lose its second status, mailing status, if both the April and May issues were delayed, in which case it would no longer be a continuous publication. 
The cost of redoing the May issue, $8,000, was more than any of the legal fees accrued during the entire court proceedings over the Hatrack affair. Even so, Mencken had another strategy. One part involved having the courts bring an injunction against the Watch and Ward Society. Another was a threat of a suit for damages against the society's endowment. Initially, the court decided with Mencken and found the citizens like Chase had no right to intimidate or coerce through fear of prosecution the sale and distribution of a literary magazine. That was not, however, the final verdict. On appeal, Chase found a judge to reverse the injunction since the effort to ban the sale of the April issue was a one-time affair. The hat rack incident fizzled. Mencken was still standing. So was the moralism that underwrote Victorian America's claim to superiority. Machen's brush with the moral establishment came through the normal channels of Presbyterian church government. Protestants who love to take a meeting, Presbyterians gather regularly to conduct church business. In April of 1926, Machen attended the regular assembly of the Presbytery of New Jersey, the regional body of church officials to which he belonged as a professor at Princeton Seminary. It was a routine meeting. Ever since the ratification of the 18th Amendment, though, the Presbyterian Church had strongly supported federal laws and policies that made the sale and distribution of alcohol illegal. When a motion came from a member of the Presbytery for the church to support the federal policy of prohibition, no one was surprised, including Machen, even though he belonged to a family that opposed the 18th Amendment on the grounds of states' rights. The federal government was, he believed, usurping its authority and turning America dry. Machen's older brother, Arthur, a seasoned attorney in Baltimore, actually ran for Congress in 1926 on the anti-prohibition party ticket. When the New Testament professor voted against the resolution, his reasons were also constitutional, though in this case Machen appealed to the Constitution of the Church, which said that ecclesiastical bodies should refrain from meddling in civil affairs. Machen made no speech. He did not insist that his vote be recorded. He knew his colleagues were rabidly prohibitionist and decided to let it dangle. Even so, Machen's vote became a major point of controversy when the denomination met in Baltimore for its annual General Assembly a few weeks later. One matter on their agenda was a recommendation to promote Machen to the professorship of apologetics and ethics at Princeton Seminary. Machen had already, had already had a reputation as a provocateur thanks to his 1923 book, Christianity and Liberalism, in which he argued that Protestants who equivocated on cardinal teachings of Christianity were guilty of practicing a different religion. As controversial as the argument was, the form in which Machen cast it was sufficiently reputable to gain praise from the likes of Walter Lippmann, the prominent political journalist who said that Machen's book showed acumen, saliency, saliency, and wit, and was the best popular argument produced by either side during the fundamentalist controversy. Machen's respectability, however, did not prevent the Presbyterian Church's elites from opposing his promotion at the seminary. In fact, some questioned Machen's temperament and used his vote against prohibition as evidence. The logic went like this. How could someone who did not recognize the evil of beverage alcohol teach ethics to prospective pastors? Machen's response to these objections actually showed a form of intellectual subtlety that might well aid young pastors and even old ones. And here I quote from his statement, never released because his, his friends thought it would do no good to help him out. He wrote, no one has a greater horror of the evils of drunkenness than I or a greater detestation of any corrupt traffic which has sought to make profit out of this terrible sin. It is clearly the duty of the church to combat this evil. With regard to the exact form, however, in which the power of the civil government is to be used in this battle, there may be differences of opinion. Zeal for temperance, for example, would hardly justify an order that all drunkards should be summarily butchered. Some men hold that the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act are not a wise method of dealing with the problem of intemperance, and that indeed those measures in the effort to accomplish moral good are really causing moral harm. Those who hold the view that I have just mentioned have a perfect right to their opinion so far as the law of our church is concerned. Important indeed are the functions of the police, and members of the church in their court capacity as citizens should aid in 
by every proper means within their power in, the securing, in securing the discharge of those functions. But the duty of the church in its corporate capacity is of a quite different nature, end of quote. That statement pointed to Machen's own libertarian political convictions as well as his firm belief in a separation of church and state, so firm, you could argue, as to qualify as Jeffersonian. By the time that the Presbyterians in Baltimore had concluded their business, during which they heard from Idaho Senator William E. Bora that the liquor traffic was a curse to the human family and a test of the American people's capacity for constitutional government, they decided to put Machen's promotion on hold and to form a committee to investigate Princeton Seminary. The not-so-subtle message was that any school with Machen on the faculty needed scrutiny. <clears throat> the committee eventually recommended a re- reorganization that gave the president and trustees greater control over faculty. That administrative reform was tied up in the courts for two years, but when the dust settled in 1929, Machen left Princeton to form a new school, Westminster Seminary, in Philadelphia. As Mencken later wrote about the new seminary, Machen, quote, fell out with the reformers who have been trying in late years to convert the Presbyterian Church into a kind of literary and social club <laughs> devoted vaguely to good works. His one and only purpose was to hold the church resolutely to what he conceived to be the true faith. When that enterprise met with opposition, he fought vigorously. And though he lost in the end and was forced out of Princeton, it must be manifest that he marched off to Philadelphia with all the honors of war, end of quote. A few years earlier, Mencken had also commented on Machen's opposition to prohibition and observed, if Christ, quote, if Christianity were true, as Machen believes, then the Bible is true, and if the Bible is true, then it is true from cover to cover. There is absolutely no flaw in the arguments which he, which he supports it. If he is wrong, then the science of logic is a hollow vanity signifying nothing. I have also noted that Dr. Machen is a wet. This is a somewhat remarkable in a Presbyterian, but certainly it is not illogical in a fundamentalist. He is a wet, I take it, simply because the Yahweh of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New are both wet, because the whole Bible, in fact, is wet. End quote. <laughs> The irony, of course, was that the biblical scholar, not just the skeptical journalist, ran afoul of the cultural guardians of national greatness. Machen was asking for it, but, excuse me, Mencken was asking for it, but Machen, as a professor at the Presbyterian's oldest seminary, was not the same sort of rabble-rouser, which leads to the question, was there something in the water in Baltimore? (laughs) Trying to explain... The overlap in Mencken and Machen's outlooks by invoking the city's utilities makes some sense since their backgrounds were so different. They came from different sides of the tracks, Machen from a family of southern wasp aristocrats, Mencken from connections loosely German-American, or maybe stronger over time. Machen grew up in the elegant setting of the Mount Vernon neighborhood, what Henry James referred to as Baltimore's parlor, Mencken hailed from the city's west side, thoroughly bourgeois but not refined. Machen received a world-class education by Victorian standards. He was a graduate of Johns Hopkins in classics for both a BA and MA, and then studied at Princeton, both the seminary and the university, before doing a year of independent study at German universities. Mencken received formally only a high school degree. His undergraduate and graduate studies came as a journalist who covered the city's politics and streets. Of course, the biggest difference was religion. Machen was a committed Presbyterian and, as Mencken observed, a devout follower of the Geneva Mohammed John Calvin. Mencken was more tolerant of religion than many of his biographers have allowed, but he was still a pronounced skeptic who blamed the Calvinism of the Puritans, for starters, for most of the deficiencies of American politics and literature. Trying to find some coherence between these two dissimilar figures leaves Baltimore as the only experience in common, and that at roughly the same time. Mencken was born in 1880, roughly 10 months before Machen. Something else they shared was growing up in a society dominated by progressive ideas and politics, and both descended vigorously from the progressive ideology that made America great. After the Civil War, the United States faced a set of circumstances that tested the very union the war was supposed to preserve, a rapidly expanding economy, 
and immigration population relocating to big cities presented America with a constellation of problems that included corporate trusts, labor strife, corruption, big city machines, public health, and women's rights, for starters. What made these challenges even more difficult was a constitution that placed limits on the one government, not state or city, but federal, that might be able to respond. Progressives began to look to credentialed experts who could harness science, natural and social, to solve society's inequalities. They also looked to a modernized Protestantism, often called the social gospel, to carry out a crusade against unrighteousness, from the evils of beverage alcohol to the German Kaiser. The modernist Protestants whom Machen opposed in the Presbyterian Church were the same who adapted Christianity to evolution, higher criticism, and Freudian psychology to stress collective reform and over-personal salvation and faith that had good government, faith that good government could perfect society over time. Progressive Protestants even believed that America's purpose was to build a literal heaven on earth in preparation for the second coming and thousand-year reign of the saints. One of those progressives was the Presbyterian president himself, Woodrow Wilson, who in his first inaugural address said, the nation has been deeply stirred by a solemn passion, stirred by the knowledge of wrong, of ideals lost, of government too debauched and made an instrument of evil. The feelings with which we face this new age of right and opportunity sweep across our heartstrings like some air out of God's own presence where justice and mercy are reconciled, end of quote. If Baltimore itself was not the source of Mencken and Machen's descent from such pious patriotism, growing up in a progressive atmosphere was. To find room to breathe intellectually meant looking for sources that supplied ammunition against such overwrought idealism. Each man turned to the nation's past and the meeting of a federal republic, and from there went in different directions. Mencken to realistic and even dark literature Machen to religious teachings that did not uplift but humiliated notions of human virtue. Mencken was by nature a contrarian. Consequently, his descent from the prevailing infatuation with Abraham Lincoln and the Union's victory in the Civil War may have been simply an expression of his unwillingness to join the crowd. If anyone ever had reason to doubt Mencken's patriotism, at least in terms defined by the North's victory, they need only read his assessment of the Gettysburg Address. He conceded that it was eloquence brought to a pellucid and almost childlike perfection, a speech that made all the whoopings of the Websters, Sumners, and Everett seem gaudy and silly. But it was oratory, not logic, beauty, not sense. And the reason was that, quote, he asked this question, quote, what was the practical effect of the Battle of Gettysburg? What else than the destruction of the old sovereignty of the states, end of quote. That rendering of the Norse victory certainly put a damper on the way that American exceptionalists remembered it. They wanted to see 1865 as the fulfillment of 1776. But Mencken seemed to think that you could not have the limited government of the American founding and the big government necessary to fight wars like the Civil, the Spanish-American, and the First World War. Mencken, in other words, was not hopeful about government, big or small, but sensed that the founders wanted a government that could do as little harm as possible, the opposite of the way the progressives thought of it. The founding fathers, Mencken argued, were, quote, under no illusions as to the nature of government. Jefferson, it was, who said that government is best which governs least, end of quote. But the ideals of the Constitution were far behind. The actual history of the Constitution, as everyone knows, Mencken lamented, has been a history of the gradual abandonment of all such impediments to government tyranny. This trend, he predicted, was not irreversible. And he said this and wrote this in 1922, roughly. Quote, today, no one seriously maintains, as all Americans once maintained, that the states can go on existing together as independent commonwealths, each with its own laws, its own legal theory, and its own view of the common constitutional bound. Bond, excuse me. And today, no one seriously maintains, as all Americans once maintained, that the nation may safely potter on without adequate means of defense. However unpleasant it may be to contemplate, the fact is that the American people during the next century will have to fight to maintain their place in the sun. End of quote. My editorial comment is you don't get much closer to prophecy than that. 
Like Mencken, Machen was also a states' rights advocate who worried about the centralization of federal power that the Civil War had achieved. Aside from prohibition, Machen's chief public policy arena was education, and he testified before Congress in 1926, along with other members of the libertarian organization, the Sentinels of the Republic, to oppose the formation of a federal Department of Education, which actually did not happen for another 50 years. Even before the New Deal, which he, like Mencken, opposed, Machen objected to the kind of Christian nationalism that undergirded progressives' plans to achieve national uniformity, especially through policies designed to assimilate immigrants. There is the problem of the immigrants, Machen wrote. Quote, great populations have found a place in our country. They do not speak our language or know our customs, and we do not know what to do with them. They have, we have attacked them by oppressive legislation. But such measures have not been altogether effective. Somehow these people display a perverse attachment to the language that they learned at their mother's knee. And we are perplexed in our efforts to produce a unified American people. So religion is called in to help. We are inclined to proceed against the immigrants now with a Bible in one hand and a club in the other, offering them the blessings of liberty. That is what is sometimes meant by Christian Americanization, end quote. Like Mencken, Machen also channeled Thomas Jefferson, who thought that the greatest governed people is the be- is the excuse me the least governed people is the best governed. He affirmed that the nation was not divided for purposes of administrative convenience into a number of units called states, but a number of indestructible states, states each with its inalienable rights, each with its distinctive features, with its own virtues to be cultivated by its own citizens with its own defects not to be remedied at all unless remedied by its own citizens. This form of government reduced the federal authorities to carefully limited powers expressly granted by a constitution which was not of its own making. Instead of looking to the national government to establish uniformity among Americans, Machen reveled in the sort of diversity that emerged from differences between states, regions, cultures, peoples, and other groups. That sort of pluralism, however, was a problem if the United States was going to fight for its place in the sun. To be a world power, a wor- uh, to, excuse me, to be a world power required a world-class military and an economy to support it, and that placed cultural diversity at odds with the, the emerging American greatness. Chances are that the states' rights, libertarian, federalist outlook that Mencken and Machen both inherited from the Baltimore of their youth also went deeper to an understanding of human beings and the sort of culture that shaped the human spirit. In effect, anti-progressive politics were downstream from an understanding that took seriously the dark side of human nature. Unlike progressives who believed government could correct human failings, Mencken and Machen thought otherwise. Mencken found confirmation in humanity's irreformable ways in the writing he edited and promoted. He constantly lamented American literature's extraordinarily timid and superficial character, its evasion of the genuinely serious problems of life and art. In Russian, German, and French literature, a reader immediately encountered a definite attitude toward the primary mysteries of existence, the unsolved and ever-fascinating problems at the bottom of human life, and of a way of translating their challenge into drama. In a long essay called The Forward Looker, Mencken commented on the ability of moralists to accept the human condition and find what measure of pleasantness accompanied the pain. Quote, instead of ranting absurdly against the fact or weeping over it maudlinly or trying to remedy it with inadequate means, we simply put the thought of it out of our minds, just as a wise man puts away the thought that alcohol is probably bad for his liver or that his wife is a shade too fat. Instead of mulling over it and suffering from it, we seek contentment by pursuing the delights that are so strangely mixed with the horrors, by seeking out the soft spots and endeavoring to avoid the hard spots. Such is the intelligent habit of practical and sinful men. After all, the world is not our handiwork, and we are not responsible for what goes on in it, save within within very narrow limits. Going outside them with our protests and advice tends to become contumacy to the celestial hierarchy. Do the poor suffer in the midst of plenty? Then let us thank God politely that we are not poor. Are rogues in offices, 
will go call a policeman, thus setting rogue upon rogue. Are taxes onerous, wasteful, unjust? Then let us dodge as large a part of them as we can. Are whole regiments and army cops of our fellow creatures doomed to hell? Then let them complain to the archangels, and if the archangels are too busy to hear them, to the nearest archbishop. End of quote. Machen's own awareness of a larger natural and philosophical order that did not conform to progressive hopes came more from the ancients that he studied at Johns Hopkins than modern authors, but the chief source was his own religion. Part of the theological outlook that Calvinism nurtured was the notion that the human condition was desperate, as Machen called it, thanks to the fall. That meant the only remedy was the atoning death of Christ. In great folly, modernist, preacher offers, modernist preachers offered encouragement, but no good news, Machen believed. Make the best of the situation, he paraphrased the liberal pre- preacher. Look on the bright side of life. Such optimism could not remove the dreadful effect, fact of sin. Of course, that sort of frank lang- a description of, humans, of the human situation in the language of Christian doctrine, no less, was not the sort of argument that secular intellectuals knew what to do with or that Protestant leaders thought would attract church members. It was nonetheless what anyone familiar with the Christian, Christian tradition, from the Apostle Paul and Augustine down to Aquinas and Luther, might expect someone who taught at a seminary to say. And it was, not to be missed, an outlook that began to make a lot more sense after the Great Depression and another world war, when the likes of Reinhold Niebuhr, who was President Obama's favorite theologian, also began to say that the optimism and moralism of progressives was little more than a fairy tale. Machen's frankness about human nature and the Christian message did not prevent him from receiving invitations to academic and professional gatherings where people wanted to hear from representative authors. One such occasion was the meeting of the, in 1933, of the, convention, of the American Social and Political Science Association where Machen spoke on the topic of the church's responsibility in the context of dire economic conditions. There he admitted that the church's ministry seemed irrelevant, even otherworldly, but he added that if you are dissatisfied with the relative goodness, which is no goodness at all, if you are dissatisfied with the world and are seeking the living God, then turn to the church. Did such a change of outlook mean that students of political and social science would become less fitted to solve this world's problems by becoming citizens of another world. Machen did not think so. Quote, the world's problems could never be solved by those who think this world is all, end of quote. Christianity was a long way from making the world safe for democracy or from moving rates of unemployment back into single digits. Machen understood that, and like Mencken was content to live with the afflictions of human existence here and now in hopes of remedies profound and complete in a world to come. As different as Mencken and Machen were, their shared awareness of human frailty, the virtual impossibility of fixing it, and refusal to be outraised at such difficulties drew directly on a Baltimore sensibility. It was a sense that valued the familiar and local over the abstract or general. This meant that what made America truly great was not war or conquest, but a collection of places where people worked, loved, ate, became despondent, argued, voted, read, and above all, endured. Survival mattered more than winning, persistence more than remaking the world in in the image of democracy or liberty. Mencken captured this sense remarkably well in his essay on living in Baltimore. Quote, The charm of getting home, as I see it, is the charm of getting back to what is inextricably my own, to things familiar and long-loved, to things that belong to me alone and none other. I have lived in one house in Baltimore for nearly 45 years. It has changed in that time, as I have, but somehow it still remains the same. No conceivable decorator's masterpiece could give me the same ease. It It is much a part of me as my two hands. I believe that this feeling for the hearth is infinitely stronger in Baltimore than in New York, that it it has better survived there, indeed, than in any other large city of America, that that its persistence accounts for the superior charm of the town. End of quote. It is, or is it, too much of a stretch to argue that this same sensibility survives in Baltimore, at least if David Simon's brilliant HBO series, so here it is, 
The Wire is correct. Invoking a television show that not everyone has seen is a sure way to lose your audience. But to tie this talk together, I will venture out on a limb and suggest that the best television series ever made, the one that examined how the drug trade overwhelmed a city, from its people and police to its ports, politicians, school principals, and press, was also a testimony to Baltimore's attachment to what Mencken called things familiar and long-loved. Two incidents from the series illustrate the powerful draw of the familiar. The first was when Bodie, one of the middle managers on Barksdale's east side drug trade, had to travel to Philadelphia for a new shipment. In the van, the driver, a character named Shamrock, turned on the radio, and once they reached the distance outside Baltimore's broadcast range, started to sample Philadelphia stations. That's when the two drug dealers became disoriented. And I'm quoting from their exchange. Bodie, the radio in Philadelphia is different. Shamrock, N-word, please. You got, you got to be F-word with me. I'm sorry, I got I to clean this up a little. But I still think you got to get the flavor. You can't, you ain't never heard a radio station outside of Baltimore? Bodie, man, I ain't never left Baltimore except that boy's village S-word one day and there wasn't no radio up in that B-word. Shamrock starts to hit the preset buttons. Bodie, come on, man, you're killing me. Shamrock turns into Prairie Home Companion, and viewers hear Garrison Keeler say, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, my hometown. It's been perfect tomato weather out there. (laughs) Bodie, this is Philadelphia Station. Shamrock, how the heck should I know? Bodie, why would anyone want to leave Baltimore? That's what I'm asking. (laughs) The other incident was Jimmy McNulty's affair with a political strategist and fundraiser in the Democratic Party. McNulty was that typical film noir detective with as many demons in himself as criminals on the street. As good as sex was with Teresa de Agostino, Jimmy soon realized after going to dinner and fundraisers that this woman was plugged into national greatness and did not care about what was important to him, namely the life and people of Baltimore. And for one of the rare times in the series, Jimmy turned down a roll in the hay for something even more true to himself. And this is how he explained it to his partner, Kima McNulty. I feel like I don't even belong to any world that even bleeping matters. Greg's Kima, cause you're a cop? McNulty, nah, it's not just that. It's like I went to meet her once. She was in a hotel room on the top floor. I punch the button on the elevator and it doesn't even go there. You gotta have some kind of special key to get to that special F word floor. So I go to the front desk, some sneering F word calls upstairs, gives me permission to go and get laid. I listen to the S word she talks about and it's the first time in my life I feel like an F word doormat. Like anyone else with any smarts would do something else with his life, you know, earn money or get elected like I'm a breathing sex machine. I'm serious. I'm the smartest a-hole in three districts, and she looks at me like I'm some stupid F-word playing at some stupid game for stupid penty-ante stakes, end of quote. Jimmy sensed that Baltimore did not matter to national politics and those who led the free world. But for those for whom place and familiarity mattered, Baltimore had its own greatness. And this is clearly what Mencken believed. He wrote again in that essay on, on living in Baltimore, quote, human relations in such a place tend to as- assume a solid permanence. A man's circle of friends becomes a sort of extension of his family circle. His contact- contacts are with men and women who are rooted as he is. They are not moving all the time, and so they are not charming their friends all the time. In human relationships that are so casual, there is sel- seldom any satisfaction. It is our fellows who make life endurable to us and give it a purpose and a meaning. What I contend is that in Baltimore, under a slow-moving and cautious social organization, touched by the southern sun, such contacts are more enduring than elsewhere and that life in consequence is more agreeable. End of quote. I cannot prove that Baltimore is responsible for nurturing skepticism about national greatness, and a fondness for local attachments of modest allure. But when you add up the experiences of Mencken, Machen, Bodie, and Jimmy, 
It sure looks like more than coincidence. Thank you. custom is, I believe, to take questions. I will glad to try to answer some if anyone has them. Yes? Um, I can't resist asking how it was came that you came to us from Hillsdale. <laughs> I'm so delighted to have you, a historian here. Um, but uh, anyway, very, very happy to have you, and you certainly struck an <laughs> it's as if you've always known Macon. Anyway, uh, so so uh, how did you get involved with Macon, please? Uh, well, it's it's through the root of of, of Machen and Bob Bruger was. Um, he said he first met me on the uh, the ba- basketball courts at Hopkins, where we played a lot of basketball. I don't think Bob was on the history department um, intramural team at that point. Um, but I, I did. One, one. I'm, <laughs> Uh, but I, I wrote my dissertation at Johns Hopkins on J. Gresham Machen. And, um, and so I became aware of, of Macon that way. And uh, that ties into Bob because Bob was the editor of, of my first book with Johns Hopkins Press. So That's why I wear the, this tie. Okay. I think I can get away with it. Every year we hear his different stories of how people found Macon. I just Right. No, Macon, Macon wrote a, a, an obituary of Machen. Uh, January of 1937, but he also wrote, uh, and I quoted from some of it here, um, called an essay for the American Mercury called "The, Amer- the Impregnable Rock," um, and that's where that that quotation about the Bible being the whole Bible being wet comes from. Um, so, uh, I don't, I, I don't know really how much I, I can't imagine. Mencken was not on Machen's radar, but I didn't see references to it in his correspondence. But, uh, but clearly. Machen was on Mencken's, and so that was how part of the way. But I've been hooked ever since. Um, I am a, a homer for, for Mencken. Um, so be careful if you say anything negative about him. <laughs> yes, Clarinda. Huh. I did not know that. Yeah, after, after, the, after the series ended. So that kind of, I think The Wire, you made a beautiful case for how, how well it relates to that view of Macon of Baltimore. But I just wanted to say that so did Homicide. We had a discussion about this on Homicide over The Wire. And so I just wondered if well, that had factored in at all, because it proved your point so nicely. No, it hadn't. I have. I've read the book. I've read Simon's book, which is uh, is amazing. The, the Homicide, the book on which the series in part is based. But he also drew upon that for for aspects of the Wire as well. Um, and I'm a big fan of Simon. Uh, can't wait to see the Deuce, even though it's got a pretty his new HBO series coming out. I guess it's it's. I think it starts tomorrow night on HBO. I, and it, I didn't. I should get money for making that plug. <laughs> Yes. This is really not specific to Nathan or any of uh, what you talked about, but you mentioned Wilson and that progressive era phenomenon that he theoretically represented, and yet he was responsible, as I understand it, for getting rid of most African Americans that were in civil positions in Washington when he got elected. Do you think that was mostly motivated from his Southern heritage and in connection with the Democratic Party, or do you even have a, a, a speculation on that? No, I think, I think that's right. The Democratic Party would have had to try to keep its coalition together, which included okay. a lot of people um, who, who did not, who believed in white supremacy. Uh, excuse me. And, and clearly, Wilson took that baggage with him. But it was, it was also an outlook that was true north of the border as well. I mean, Ivy League institutions did not admit blacks or Jews until much later. Um, and I, mean, I think it, it's, it, we think of progressive as being 
on the right side of, the, of race issues. But then it didn't mean that. And you could be progressive and still be a racist. It, it doesn't make sense today, but it, it was true then. Um, and that's not to say all, ra- all progressives were racist, but they were anti-Catholic. Pardon me, dear, she doesn't like this phrase. Up the wazoo. I mean, there, there was all sorts of prejudice and bigotry on, on, among the progressives who we regard as as enlightened in a lot of other ways, as well we should in some ways. I don't, I don't mean, that's just what history is really complicated, that, you know, and, and so everyone has faults. We, so you've got to be careful who you put up on a statue, but also, you know, you've got to remember that anybody's up there is also filled with all sorts of problems, making included. Yes? Right, and, and for, if you don't know the foreign policy literature, that's fine, and I only know some of it. But this talk, I read last year a book in, in connection to a course I taught, uh, Walter McDougall's uh, The Tragedy of American Foreign Policy, Civil Religion and the Betrayal of National Interests. And, and McDougall has a very uh, keen eye for the kind of civil religion and Protestant-inflected civil religion that has informed so much of American foreign policy since the Spanish-American War. So I recommend that book if you're interested in that more. Maybe that'll get me a few points with, with Walter, but we'll see. Uh, so what, to what extent do you think that Mencken's views are a reflection of the German idea of Heimat, homeland? So is he original or is he just absorbed what the, the Germanic culture of Baltimore, which was at one time 40% German, right. was uh, in the air? <laughs> I mean, the, the way uh, – I'm partly German-American, so I guess I can actually speak to this. But Oleg, you may be more than I am. But um, Pennsylvania Dutch, my dad's side. Um, but the way I read Mencken, I, I don't necessarily see direct German references to it. And my understanding of Mencken is that at least earlier in his life, he was not as enamored as his father was not with the German-American community. They were trying to disassociate themselves from it. That the war, Great War, England versus Germany, in fact, kind of revved up, it seems to me, Mencken's ethnic identity, as it were. But the way he lived his life, I think, was just as a kind of average, middle-class, reporter, editor type and it may have resonated somewhere back generations with some of the other Mencken's, I guess. But um, I, I mean, I even see reading Mencken over time that Nietzsche kind of wears away. I mean, it's kind of something he 
he uses Nietzsche a lot, it seems to me, in, in the teens, but not so much in the 20s and 30s. So I, I think you could make a case that it's probably there, maybe an echo form in some way, but not direct. Yes, sir. A lot of us, of course, appreciate Mencken as a stylist. I just wondered about Bacon. Were there any similarities in terms of how they wrote? No. Machen is incredibly clear. Everyone, every time I assign him, people, and I, even when I first read him at Harvard Divinity School, of all places, um, uh, I was blown away by the clarity of his thought. And, uh, and he grew up in a, a lawyer's home. I mean, and his brother was a lawyer. And whether that's part of that, that culture or studying the Greeks and the Romans does that for you, I don't know. Um, but he didn't take, um, aside from that swipe he took at Christian Americanization, you know, you, you go after them with the Bible in one hand and the club in the other. That's about as inflammatory as, as Machen really got. But Mencken could be swinging all the time, depending on what he's writing. Yes? So you made a, uh, a just a slip of a comment is sparking this question. There is no, um, other than the, the paintings of Mencken, there is no um, three-dimensional representation of Mencken. There's no statue of Mencken in Baltimore. Um, so it, this is a two-part question. One of the things I wouldn't mind the Mencken Society doing is at least get commissioning a bust, but anyway. Well, well I, 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 I'm wondering, because of your, that comment where you said you have to be careful about putting people on pedestals and right. statues. I wonder if there were a, an image of Mencken as a statue of Baltimore, would it have to have come down? Right. We know in this room Mencken's was a complicated person and and, it's, it, and the discussions about anti-Semitism and racism and so forth. We know he was a, he was a complicated man. But, but today, it seems like that doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's a black or white issue, and you know, the statues have to come down. So I, I'm at, I, my question, I guess, is, because we seem to ask this every year we, for speakers, we always say, well, what would Mencken say? You know, we always want you. We always want you, the speaker, to tell us, you know, because he's not alive. So you've got to, you've got to bring him uh, to, to life for us. What would Mencken say? What would he have written about right. the fact that in the past three weeks or a month, that in the middle of the night, <laughs> statues had to be yanked down without a public discussion and. This is. I'm going to weasel on this, uh, but but I, I but I will mention two things. One is, um, this is a plug for the Mencken Society. We had our annual meeting this morning, and George Lee, George Liebman, a, a Baltimore attorney, spoke there. But I, I I haven't read it yet. But he wrote a piece. I guess for the was it published in the Sun, Bob? I thought it was. Yes. Uh, so the, and not to say that he was writing in the spirit of Mencken. I don't. I don't. But. But Mr. Liebman knows Mencken well, and so you could maybe extrapolate from what he wrote about that case. And I haven't seen it. I don't know when it was published, but L-I-E-B-M-A-N-N, George Liebman. And if you follow Mencken Society business, his talk will come up either in the newsletter or Mencken and I need to talk to you about that only. Um, so that's one way uh, of maybe thinking about it. But... I mean, it also depends on where you look in, in Mencken. That, that excerpt I wrote from The Forward Looker, where he's willing to live with all of these pains and horrors of human existence, I think that's one way you could say he would look at that. Well, you know, what do you expect here? But on the other hand, depending on, on, the, on the cause, I mean, if they were going to put up, or if there were a statue of, uh, of Chase from the Watch and Ward Society, I mean, would Mencken be leading the charge to take it down? I don't, I don't know. Yes, Chuck. Um, so I suppose it's a variation on uh, what, would, what would they say. If, if the two of them had more in common with each other, 
in their heyday, they likely would have had equal objections to the progressive mindset today and the Trumpian make America great again today. But would they have more difficulty with one or the other or not? I'm, I get this may reveal more of my own politics, and I did not vote for Trump. Please. I'm making that clear. I did not vote for Trump. Um, I'm serious. I did not. I forgot, I forgot to fill out that part of my ballot. Uh, um, I think, I mean, my reading of Mencken and Machen would suggest that with Trump, it's so much easier to see what a clown this guy is, that you don't, you don't have to worry about that. It's what you've got to worry about is the other side, which still pretends to be uh, virtuous and, and great and the, the, making America into this world power that's going to protect the world order in some way. I think that's, and where Trump will come down on that, I, I still don't, it's, it's yet to be seen, but I think that's something they would have, they would have cared about, what, what America's international footprint is doing to American society at home and locally. And doing it in a in a in a in a moral tone that makes us feel like this is you know we're really really good people in doing this. Yes, that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Hart. For, I have to lower that a little. Thank you, Dr. Hart, for that. Uh, that speech and uh, the robust conversation afterwards. We appreciate you all being here today for this uh, event. And we will be selling books out uh, front, so please stop by and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much again.